Hello folks, Chris Butland here. Uh, unfortunately, the first five minutes of this particular preach from our series on the Gospel of Mark were not recorded. And it's a shame because they were probably the best five minutes of preaching you would ever hear, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. Uh, the recording actually starts during my introduction and I'm talking about people making brave speeches in front of difficult audiences and I'm telling the story of Frederick Douglass who's an American man who was born into slavery in the 18th century but who managed to escape and who became a major voice in the struggle to see slavery uh, become abolished. So as you join the preach I'm about to read an extract of a speech that Frederick Douglass made on the 4th of July which is of course Independence Day in America. So I hope you enjoy the rest of this recording. So it was the 4th of July. Um, my country is celebrating its freedom, celebrating its independence. And he's invited to speak at this place. And in the first half of his speech, he honoured and celebrated the occasion. And, and he celebrated all those who fought for the freedom of America. And, you know, he, he kind of, you know, he honoured the day. He didn't take the mic. He said, look, you know, Independence Day is a great day. I want to celebrate it. But then he used his platform to deliver actually a brave and vital message. And the contents of his message are still taught today in American schools. Because whilst America was celebrating its independence and freedom, Douglas exposed the hypocrisy that millions of the country's inhabitants were anything but free. I'm just going to read a brief uh, quote from it. He says, What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, It's a day that reveals to him, more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality are hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up the crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are, than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Oof, that took some guts, didn't it? On the 4th of July, proclaiming the freedom of the country, saying, do you know what, guys? You've got this badly wrong. There are millions of people who are in slavery in this nation. How dare you? How dare you cry freedom at this time? 13 years later, after a bloody civil war, slavery was abolished in the USA, thanks in part to the bravery of the likes of Frederick Douglass and Co. And today's passage in Mark, I think we see one of the most brave and controversial and powerful speeches ever. And actually in this speech, we, we see thousands of years of history distilled into mere sentences. And we even see the future laid out accurately in a way that hits the audience right between the eyes and in a way which caused huge controversy. Let's read together uh, Mark 12. Uh, it's on the screens there. We're going to read verses 1 to 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect them, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. 
But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So we've got the situation where Jesus is speaking in parables. Who to and where are they? Well, they're in the temple courts of Jerusalem. And he's speaking to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. We know that from the previous chapter. That's, it tells us that's the situation he's in. He sat down with some of the most important people in the Jewish faith. These are the bosses. These are the guys, the experts, the scribes, the scholars, the people who make the laws. And he's speaking to these guys in this parable. And just to be clear, this is not a friendly audience. The last time Jesus visited the temple, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, he cleared the place out. And he accused the people in there of turning it into a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. It was a pretty controversial visit. And the reaction to that, we see in chapter 11, verse 18, is that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. That's what happened in the last chapter. And yet Jesus was rocked back up to the temple the next day, the day after, and started teaching again. Let's be clear, Jesus, even being in this situation, is a bold move because he is a wanted man. In the eyes of the people he's speaking to, he's a troublemaking rabble-rouser. The only thing he's got going for him is that he has popular support. The authorities can see that at this stage, the crowds love him. He's just arrived in the city a few, a few days ago to an amazing response to that Palm Sunday welcome of branches and, and coats and, and shouts of Hosanna. And they've still got people intrigued and following his every move. It would cause an absolute riot to arrest him and do anything with him now. That's the only thing he's got going for him. So to some extent, if he stays in the public places, there is some safety. But you know what? If I was Jesus, I think I'd be keeping a lower profile. I've probably done enough damage for one week. I'd probably tone it down a little bit. But as we see in this parable that he tells, he does anything but. In fact, he takes this opportunity to spell out to his audience who he is, why he's here, and exactly what it means for them and the rest of the world. Let's have a quick overview look at, uh, at what Jesus does say here. You know, a few years ago, we did a series as a church which provided, tried to provide an overview of the entirety of the Bible, the whole of Scripture. And do you know what? It was really hard work as a preacher. I think one sermon I did covered something like 400 years 
of Old Testament history. It took ages to prep and even longer to deliver it. And those of you still in the church after staying for that preach that Sunday, well done. You toughed it out. Um, so it's a bit annoying to read this passage where you basically find Jesus summarizing scripture into about 200 words. In this parable, that's what this, that's what this parable is. It's actually a summary of the whole, pretty much, of biblical history distilled into a short story that's really easy to understand. You know, we could have saved ourselves an awful lot of time with that series. <laughs> I hope it was still valuable anyway. But with this parable about a man and his vineyard, Jesus illustrates vividly what has happened, what is happening, and what is going to happen between God and the nation of Israel. And the imagery he uses is really stark. And we read at the end of the passage that the audience were in no doubt as to what he was getting at. It says they understood um, they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They were in no doubt. They didn't leave thinking, what did he mean by that? Is, that, is, he, getting, is, he, is he talking about us? Is he talk-? No, they knew. They knew what he was saying and who he was saying it about. I think we can break this parable down into three broad chunks. Verses 1 to 5 is Jesus basically summarizing the Old Testament, the journey so far, what's happened between God and Israel through Scripture in the Old Testament. Then we get verses 6 to 8, which actually summarizes a little bit of what's going on right, right at that moment and a little bit of what, what, about what's about to happen, basically the coming of Jesus and, and what they're going to do to him. And then verses 9 to 11, Jesus just touches on where this is going to lead to, what's going to happen next. So let's go through these sections. Verses 1 to 5, a summary of the Old Testament. Jesus sets the scene by explaining through the parable what God's relationship has been like with Israel. And the characters in this story all relate very clearly and very easily to different people in this story. So we've got the vineyard. We've got the vineyard that is planted and is established. And that vineyard in this story is very clearly to be Israel. We've got the vineyard owner, the man who plants the vineyard, who builds the vineyard, who builds the wine press. And that man, that's God. God that is God in the story. Then we've got the tenants, the people who the vineyard is given over to, to look after. And those people are the people of Israel. And they're given responsibility by God to tend the vineyard, to live in it peacefully, prosperously. God has established this vineyard. He's chosen them, this nation, chosen among others to have this vineyard and to look after it. And then we've got the servants. The servants sent to the tenants are the prophets appointed by God and sent to Israel at key times in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, you can see John the Baptist, who's another one of these servants. And God sends these servants to lead the people back to him, to lead them to repentance. At key times when they've strayed, at key times when they've failed to follow him, he sends these prophets by his grace and says, guys, you need to turn back to God. You need to honor the owner of the vineyard. You're getting it wrong. You're not honoring him. You're not living right. The story talks about the servants trying to come and collect some of the fruit of the vineyard. The fruit of the vineyard, quite simply, is, is just obedience to God and worship to him. That's all he's asking for. He doesn't ask for a high rent. <laughs> he doesn't ask for a long lease. He just says, guys, I've given you this place. I want a relationship with you. All I ask is that you worship me and that you obey me. Because I'm good and I'm good for you. Just worship me. And when those servants come, it's to remind them, guys, you stopped. You're rebelling against me. Actually, you're sinning against me. You really need to worship me because I'm the best thing you've got. But we see 
in the story, the repeated pattern, rejection of God. He sends multiple servants, multiple people, multiple prophets. And yet the people constantly, the whole story of, of the Old Testament, if you read it, is the people just rejecting him and rebelling against him and choosing other gods, other things to worship, other priorities, choosing anything but God. Now, you might think this is the really controversial bit of the passage as he hits them right between the eyes with this truth. But you know what? I don't think any of those listening would have disagreed with this part. Because Jesus is basically telling them what they already know from Scripture. He's telling them what they already know from their holy books. In fact, he's borrowing very heavily from the book of Isaiah. Uh, a passage in Isaiah chapter 5. Just turn to it if you've got it. Um, Isaiah 5. I'm just going to read the first few verses. We'll see if you recognize this from what we've just read. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and, create, and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but he yielded only bad fruit. Can you see how similar this is to the parable that Jesus is telling? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it. But when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. What Jesus is telling the people here has already been happening. He's reminding them of their history. He's reminding them they are the vineyard. They are his chosen people in his chosen place. And they've got it badly wrong. The authorities that he's preaching to could hardly argue with what he's saying because he's just repeating back to them what their sacred scriptures said. They've been given this vineyard. They've been chosen and they yielded bad fruit. They rejected God's attempt to restore to him, restore them to him through the prophets. The, um, the servants and the prophets don't appear in the, in the Isaiah passage, but obviously Isaiah, who's writing it, is one of the prophets. But the Jews understood the reference nonetheless. And in fact, we see Jesus speaking to the, to the same crowd in, in, in Luke's account, where he says this, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. And because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all. The Jews and the people he was preaching to, they knew what had been done to God's prophets. They knew they'd been killed. They knew they'd been beaten up. They knew they'd been rejected. But Jesus is calling out, he's saying, you guys see this as a sin of your past. You guys see this as something that happened years ago. You guys see this as something that your, your ancestors did and that you're innocent of and you're just building the tombs and burying them. Actually, you need to understand you're guilty of this too. In fact, you've just done this all over again with John the Baptist. We see the story of John the Baptist, don't we? He prepares the way for Jesus, the voice of one calling in the desert. 
preaching the way, preaching baptism of repentance, preaching that there's someone greater than him to follow. And he gets killed. His head gets presented on a platter to, he- uh, to the king. Jesus is making the accusation here that the current Jewish authorities were every bit as sinful and rebellious as those of the years gone by. And he's done it telling them what they already know from Scripture. That's the first part of this, par- of this parable. Next, we come to verses 6 to 8. And this is where Jesus tells them a little bit what's happening already and a little bit of what's about to happen. This summary, effectively, of the gospel. He brings the audience very much up to date. God has stopped sending prophets and he's now implementing plan A. Not plan B, plan A. He's sending his son. If the tenants hadn't listened to the servants hired by the owner, then surely they would at least listen to his own son. It would be too risky to ignore this one, surely. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you my son. The owner says, I'm going to send my son to this vineyard. But what actually happens is the tenants, in their complete misguidedness and their rebellion, they see the son as an opportunity to grab more power and more wealth for themselves. They look at him and say, he's the heir. He's the guy who's going to inherit all of this vineyard. If we can get him out of the way, if we can kill him, then this owner's going to have no one else to to leave the vineyard to except for us. It'll be ours. We'll inherit the whole lot. And so they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus is getting really controversial now. Listeners familiar with the scriptures would have known about this promise of a Messiah. And they knew that Jesus had just been welcomed into the city on the back of a donkey, welcomed as if he was that Messiah, even if he looked different to what people were hoping for. And Jesus tells his authorities, you know, you're going to kill this one too. This very guy who God has sent as his ultimate rescue plan, you're going to murder him too. You're going to throw him out too. And all for your own gain, all to try and keep the status and the privilege that you've built up for yourselves. All to keep the prestige of your robes and of your, your, your titles, of your Pharisee-likeness. You want to keep all that. You're going to reject the very one that God has sent to be your king. And Jesus was speaking about something that was still in progress. God had sent his son. He was here. He was speaking to them right now. They hadn't yet got to the point of rejecting him and throwing him out. But he's telling them, this is what you're going to do. I know it's happening. I know it's going to come. He's fulfilling it before their very eyes. And so the result, what's going to happen next, verses 9 to 11, this is where Jesus really goes for the jugular. Jesus reveals that the plan of the tenants will not work. Killing the son and throwing him out of the garden isn't going to fool God into saying, oh, okay, you're, now you're... Now you're my, my heirs and you're going to inherit everything I've given you. I was going to give to the son. Actually, rather than considering his heirs, the owner was going to punish them with death. And he's going to pass the vineyard onto others. And again, this would tie in with prophecy from Psalms. Uh, Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. That's the psalm that Jesus quotes in this passage. Quotes it directly um, in verse 10. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. It was choice of that passage was very, very deliberate because the very same Psalm 118 
is where the quotes that were shouted at Jesus as he entered into the city were from. Those shouts of Hosanna, those shouts of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord are from that same psalm, that same psalm, 118. And yet he quotes the other part of it, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You might reject this son. You might reject this Messiah that God is sending. But that's not the end of the story. God is going to use that, that son to build, to be the cornerstone. And in fact, in Luke's account of this, this same story, he goes even further. Jesus adds on the line that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Rejection of the son is not, is not going to end prettily. You know, the warning here is stark. You reject the son, you'll be rejected. And the owner will give to you, he'll give to others what, what he, was, he had given to you. And that is exactly what we see in the rest of the New Testament. God's rescue plan for Israel ends up not just being the rescue plan for them, but for the whole world. Suddenly they're not this special nation exclusively getting to worship God and call him king. Because in Jesus, God unites all of humanity. He's the king of all, to every, tar- every tribe, tongue, and nation. The one to whom every knee will ultimately bow. Jesus says, reject me if you want, but it's not going to end well. Because anyone can accept me as king and be blessed eternally. I'm not just here for you guys. I'm not just here for you Jews. I'm here for the Gentiles. I'm here for everyone. God wants to rescue the whole world, with or without you. So line up or don't line up. It's your choice. This was the teaching which leads to Jesus being rejected, tried, executed. His audience did not like what he was saying here. They preferred their way to his. They wanted to keep what they had. They wanted to keep the vineyard all for themselves. They didn't want to let anyone else in. We'd seen that in how they were using the temple, hadn't we? The whole reason that he kicked people out of the temple is because the court of the Gentiles, the bit of the temple that was where the Gentiles were allowed to be, was being used for money trading and trading and, and the Gentiles were being blocked off. The Israelites wanted to keep themselves pure. They wanted to keep the Gentiles out. Jesus is saying, nah, it's not happening. The Gentiles are coming in. In me, anyone, anyone, whether you're a Jew, whether you're whatever, anyone can come to the Father through me. And you better like it. Judgment for them wasn't far off, actually. Just 30 odd years after Jesus died, the temple was destroyed. And the Jews were scattered from Jerusalem. Jesus is telling them in no uncertain terms here, you can no longer use your status as an Israelite to assume your favour by God. My favour comes to anyone who trusts in my son, anyone who obeys him, anyone who offers him worship. It's pretty hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? Even more unpopular than my son telling me that he wished someone else was his dad. (laughs) This is pretty hard-hitting stuff. So where do we stand in this story? What might God want to say to us through this passage? The easy answer for most of us is that we're the Gentiles. That is, we're the people who aren't Jewish. We're the people who are the others that the vineyard owner will turn to when he gets rid of, the, of his wicked tenants. We're the ones who get to benefit from living in this amazing vineyard because the owner sent his son. That's the easy answer. If we're Christians here today, we're, that's who we are. We've been able to come and live in this vineyard, to to relate to the owner as our father because of what his son did. Previously, we've been kept out. We didn't belong there. We were cut off. But through the sacrifice of his son, 
the owner has turned to us and welcomed us into the family. But we mustn't make the mistake of being like the Jewish leaders, of looking at those who come before us in the story and thinking, well, that was them, we're not like that. Because Jesus called them out. Remember he called them out, it was your ancestors who killed the prophets, but it's you lot who bury them. He makes a speech to us as well. We need to be aware of our own sinfulness and rejection of God. Time and time and time again. We're guilty every single day of rejecting the vineyard owner. The Bible says, doesn't it, we're all sinful. We're all sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us at some stages is guilty of rejecting the owner and his son. We mustn't look at this story and think we're all right. There comes a point when each of us is faced with the vineyard owner's son, with Jesus. And we must decide, do I reject him or do I accept him? Now, for many of us, most of us here this morning, we've made that decision to recognize Jesus as God's son. To recognize that he was sent to earth to rescue us and to restore our relationship with his father, despite the multitude of sins that have gone before us and that we will continue to commit. And we acknowledge that sinfulness, but we know that our sinfulness is paid for by the Son. We know that there is grace upon us. We know that the sacrifice that he made has paid the price for everything we've done wrong and we will do wrong. But you know, there might be others of us here this morning who haven't made that decision yet. But it's a decision you're going to need to make. And the warning from Jesus is stark. Reject me and the consequences are dire. And that's not what he wants to happen. He longs for us to live peacefully in his father's vineyard and to enjoy the full benefits he has of being a son and heir of the father. If you've not made this decision yet, or if you just need a reminder, if you made that decision many years ago, but you just need the reminder of who God is, I think this, this passage gives us three incredible aspects of God to just take away with us. What sort of person is this vineyard owner? Or more accurately, what is God like? Is he the sort of God we even want to offer our worship to? Is he the sort of God who deserves our fruit? Is he the sort of landlord who who deserves a tenant who is obedient and faithful to him? I would argue very much, yes, he is. First of all, we see in this passage, he's a generous creator. He's a God who provides a fruit-filled, beautiful environment for his people to enjoy and who entrusts his people to faithfully tend. And all he wants back is worship. In the story, in the parable, that worship is just simply a portion of the harvest that they're growing using his facilities anyway. Just giving back to him, of him, what he's given to them. And that seems to me a very fair deal. And this picture is really real, isn't it? We believe, as Christians, that that this world is created by God for us to live in, for us to enjoy. And that life is supposed to be enjoyable, enjoyable. But he wants us to live our lives in reference to him as our creator, always aware of the gifts he's bestowed on us and which cause us to want to worship him. Our God is a generous creator God. He's also a God who is the father of a murdered son. In this story, we see the lengths 
that God is willing to go to to win back a people rebellious to him because he loves them. And it costs him his son, his only son. And it's amazing that he's even willing to send that son into such a dangerous, rebellious place in the first place. He knew the outcome was going to be bad. And he did it anyway. And I think that gives us a real insight into the kind of God we have. And it even helps us when we're faced with some of the big questions of life. Why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow pain? Why does evil happen? Why do these things go on in our world? You know, it's helpful to know that we worship a God who totally understands pain and suffering and loss. He knows what it's like. He understands it. And his son went through the unbearable pain, obediently, of death for us. We have a God who knows. We have a God who knows what it's like. He's not this far-off thing in an ivory tower who's uninterested in us. He's not this distant figure who doesn't know what it's like to, to live in this world. He sent his son who came to the earth in human flesh and experienced everything that we experienced and worse so that we could get back to him. And the third thing we see about God here is a merciful father who makes multiple attempts at reconciliation with his children. You know, the sending of the various prophets and then his son showed God to just be repeatedly gracious and merciful. When he's faced with the fact that the people he created and blessed showed him nothing but rebellion and rejection, he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't say, that's enough. You've had your chance. You're gone. No. He repeatedly attempts to win them back. And he repeatedly calls them to live in relationship to him until eventually he even sends his son. He doesn't give up on his people. He doesn't leave them to rot in the, in the, the stew of their own muck. That's a phrase. Romans 5.10 says this, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God did this for his enemies. God did this for people who hated him. For people who turn against him at every single opportunity. He did it for us, even though we repeatedly say, stuff you, God, I'm doing it my way. Stuff you, God, I'm enjoying this more than you, so I'm going to follow this. God, this is my priority, not you. God, thanks for that, but I'm more interested in this over here. God, that advice is really great, but I'm going to do this anyway does it for his enemies. He does it for people who he knows are going to reject him because he made us and because he loves us. He paid the ultimate price for us. I want to leave you with this, this question. If we're tenants in this vineyard, what sort of tenants do we want to be? Do we want to be these rebellious murderers who throw the kindness of the owner back in his face? Or do we want to be grateful followers understand the kindness shown to us and who respond with obedience.
there's an opportunity this morning as we, as we finish in worship. If you know that you're a Christian here this morning, that you have accepted the Son, but you know actually at the moment there's things you need to repent for. You know there are things actually, there are areas in your life where you know you're openly rejecting God. You know there are things actually, there's things you're doing which you know, oh God, I've, I've chosen something else here. I've put that before you and I'm sorry. There's just an opportunity to fall again on the grace of Jesus. To come to his cross and say, God, I lay it at your feet and I'm sorry and I accept your forgiveness once again. It might be that you've never accepted Jesus in your life before. There's an opportunity to do that here this morning. If you don't know him, if you didn't know that his son was sent for you so that you can live in this vineyard, you can live as a child of God, there's an opportunity for the first time to accept him and to accept him knowing that you're getting access to a father who loves you, who repeatedly shows mercy and generosity and forgiveness to you. And finally, there's an opportunity to just ask God for more fruit, to be more fruitful for him. Maybe you, you know that you're loved. You're not being particularly rebellious and you're doing all right, but actually, God, I just want to be able to give more to you. I want to be more fruitful in your vineyard. I want to be more generous. I want to pour more out, more words out to you. It's just an opportunity to do that. Ask God, God, there's only so much I can do in and of myself, but will you make me more fruitful for you? Will you make me more, uh, more generous to you?